Just a heads up, we'd like to apologise for Anna's audio. There were a few technical issues, which has meant there's some noise in parts, but it all adds to the ambience. I swear by Apollo Physician and Asclepius and Hygieia and Panacea and all the gods and goddesses making them my witnesses that I will fulfill according to my ability and judgment this oath and this covenant. So opens the Hippocratic Oath. It is a pledge that's thousands of years old and supposedly written by the father of medicine, the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates. The oath is a declaration designed to be sworn to by medical students who promise to practice medicine ethically and fairly. Upon qualifying, some doctors today still take a modern version of the Hippocratic Oath, codified in 1964. This version doesn't include swearing by the ancient gods and updates the content such as removing bans on providing abortion, euthanasia and, oddly, having sex with patients. The classical version still has familiar beats, though. Would-be doctors swear to keep the sick from harm and injustice and say that they will visit patients only for the benefit of the sick, remaining free of all intention and justice, of all mischief, be they free or slaves. The oath finishes. If I fulfil this oath and do not violate it, may it be granted to me to enjoy life and art, being honoured with fame among all men for all time to come, if I transgress it and swear falsely, May the opposite of all this be my lot. The Hippocratic Oath isn't universal, and throughout history it's often fallen out of favour. But in the 18th century, the oath began to be used more widely across medical schools in the British Empire and Europe. The Enlightenment was pushing medical developments along at a fast lick. But concurrently, chattel slavery was in full swing, and a dividing line quickly emerged between who doctors saw as patients and who they viewed as guinea pigs. Soon, Hippocratic Oath-takers were about to become hypocrites. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. Medicine played a big part in how meanings about race, meanings about place, these different categorizations that are so inbuilt into empire. This is Anna Kesson, an assistant professor at Princeton University in African-American studies. Anna is also founder of the Princeton Art HX project, which addresses how art, medicine and race informed each other in the British Empire. The name actually is sort of an amalgamation of those two different fields and backgrounds because in medical writing, in a patient's case notes, you'll find HX is used as a shorthand for history. So you'd use a patient history where you'd write patient HX. So that's where the art HX comes from. What sort of imagery do you look at? It's a big category. So it could be images that show examples of disease. There are a lot of images that you find in, say, doctors' diaries. So doctors who went out onto plantations, they were sketching the kinds of diseases they were seeing, or they might be sketching images of 
enslaved people on the plantation as a kind of illustration of, of their observation. So there's that kind of image making there. I'm also thinking about medical atlases, which were these essentially large, very comprehensive medical textbooks that were circulated in the 18th and 19th century predominantly. And they might be a comprehensive guide to skin diseases. So they would collate prints usually of different kinds of skin diseases that people might encounter across different parts of the world, including you know, the British Empire. There's also a lot of work being done on images that are more scientific. So thinking about how you might have images that show what you might see through a microscope. But I'm also interested in images that were used to promote ideas of scientific racism. So you've probably seen them, those sort of comparative charts almost showing different bodily features, skulls or facial shapes or things like that. I'm also very interested in imagery of medical architecture. So photographs play a big role in this as well. There are paintings that might show different procedures or that might be made to honour particular medical decisions. That's the kind of broad idea that I'm working with. In the first episode of the season, we heard how race begins to emerge as a concept and then a science of its own in the 1700s. I asked Anna when this biological essentialist understanding of race gets baked into medicine and what the impact is. That happens very quickly. Someone that I use a lot in my work is a woman called Rana Hoga. She's written a book called Medicalizing Blackness, Making Racial Difference in the Atlantic World. What her work looks at is how these codifications of race that begin with this legalization of slavery, essentially, how they become the frameworks for different kinds of development of medical knowledge. And so one way that she shows that taking place is in the ways that plantations or in colonial spaces were used as a sort of space of experimentation. And one of the things that slavery does, of course, is turn enslaved people into property, into kind of raw material in, in a sense, right? And what Rana Hogarth shows is that that kind of idea is also part of the way that medicine is practiced in 18th and 19th century. So that, for example, on you know, in plantation hospitals, enslaved people are seen as a kind of medical matter, is what she talks about, how they're turned into medical matter because doctors are able to go there and basically experiment in different ways. And they see the bodies of these enslaved people as learning material, essentially. And this takes place in the Caribbean, but also in the US. Medical schools develop in the 18th and early 19th century. And Plantations are really important spaces for the kinds of medical education that was taught in these schools. Another way that these ideas permeate medicine is also that scientists and medics and physicians, they're trying to figure out how to prove this racial difference. So there are a lot of treatises and, again, based on kind of experimenting on people to try and figure out if skin colour is actually an indicator of immutable difference. What do those experiments look like in practice? There are some pretty horrific stories about how doctors, they're experimenting on enslaved people's skin. And there is an image where 
a doctor has drawn of um, an enslaved woman's thumb, I think, and it's, you know, he's experimented on the kind of, on the skin and sort of depicting the different effects of that. So they're trying to figure out what's the relationship between skin and these constructions of race that are being promoted. And this is a time, I think, before that kind of extreme or the sort of immutability of race is really consolidated. That really happens in the 19th century. There's a bit more maybe ambiguity in the 18th century. And so a lot of these treatises, you know, they don't necessarily come up with a a clear answer. But then I think the other way we can think about race in some of these medical discourses is that there is this assumption that because of this immutable racial difference, people who are black or who are brown don't feel pain in the same way. And so these kinds of ideas, these kinds of stereotypes around race in medicine still continue today. An example. In 2020, an organisation called Mothers and Babies, reducing risk through audits and confidential inquiries across the UK, published a report that showed black women are four times more likely to die during pregnancy or birth than white women. Campaigners believe one of the reasons is that when black women experience pain or complications, they're not listened to. One of the areas of enslavement that has been more widely discussed is how enslaved women were mistreated and exploited by American doctors. The way J. Marion Sims, the father of gynaecology, for example, experimented upon black African women is a horrific history that has come to light more publicly in the last few years. But I think the role of British medics has really flown under the radar. I asked Anna what these British doctors were up to in the slave colonies. I would say that The colonies for British medicine was really important as a place for British doctors to go and learn about diseases and conditions and bodies that were unfamiliar to them. And then, of course, that information is sent back to Britain and to British medical schools. It's circulated in medical periodicals like the Edinburgh Surgical Medical Journal, which is still in publication today. But, you know, these kinds of journals connected colonies and doctors in the Caribbean are are writing about the things that they're seeing on plantations. So one example would be there's a doctor called James Thompson who goes to Jamaica. We don't know a lot about him, but he was also one of these doctors who's really interested in skin and he, he writes a book about skin and blackness. But he's trying to find a cure for a condition called yours, which is a a skin disease that's a viral skin disease. Its symptoms and its pathology are quite similar to syphilis. And so there's this kind of anxiety about, you know, what what is this? Is it syphilis? If it's syphilis, what does this mean? And, you know, there's a general anxiety about venereal disease anyway. So he's in Jamaica. He was a student of Thomas Queer, who was important in smallpox inoculations. And he experiments on enslaved people. So he inoculates them with yours. And there's, there are drawings we have of his showing just the inoculation sites on a toddler, an enslaved child. And he writes up his results and publishes it in the Edinburgh Journal and circulates to the UK. And then, it, you know, it comes up again in Sri Lanka when later 19th century, there's a similar concern about yours. And there are texts being written that go back to these early, late 18th and early 19th century discussions about yours in the Caribbean. 
Yours, spelt Y-A-W-S in modern medicine, is also known as Frambosia or PM. The World Health Organization says yours was one of the first diseases targeted for eradication in the 1950s. But as we've just heard, tests and experimentation on the enslaved began many, many years earlier. And then, of course, doctors are being educated in the UK, but there's not always a way to kind of establish themselves as kind of well-known doctors. So the colonies just become a place, these colonial spaces, and the people who inhabit them are seen to become really important in the production of medical knowledge. And I think a lot of these institutions, like the Royal College of Physicians, or, you know, these medical officials, they would have been very connected to them. Anna's Art HX project is about image-making, race, and the British Empire. When we talk about image-making in this context, I wondered if it was accurate to say that a medical drawing, like that of an enslaved toddler's arm infected with yours, then contributed to the way both enslaved people and these medical conditions were perceived. Dr. Thompson was creating an image where an enslaved child was purely seen as the subject of a medical experiment rather than as a living, breathing human toddler. The drawings would accompany often like a description. So with this drawing of the yours inoculation sites, you don't see the actual child, but you're just seeing these four small sites. So it's almost like looking through a microscope. So that was accompanied by a long description of what he had done and what the results were. And then that circulates, but it reinforces this idea, I think, about how enslaved people are little more than specimens in this case, or, you know, little more than objects to be examined. And similarly, you know, these kinds of medical atlases, they would have photographs or prints, you know, of people from all different parts of the UK and empire. And it would sort of be a case of just looking through it, seeing how diseases morph in different places. But that kind of difference is also often explained through ideas of racial science. So it's also about reinforcing certain ideas about geography. So for example, the, the tropics being kind of dangerous or, you know, you could be more prone to certain kinds of climatic effects or environmental effects. But then also how they were also about kind of reinforcing racial divisions in different ways. In season one, episode two of Human Resources, Dr. Kate Murphy spoke about the British naturalists, who often doubled up as staff on slave ships, who used slave colonies as collection sites. It seems what Anna is saying is that the specimen gathering did not stop with just the things around the enslaved. The enslaved themselves became part of those collections for science too. Speaking about image making very obviously links to modern medical racism. It was as recently as 2020 when a London-based medical student called Malone Mukunde created a project called Mind the Gap to address the fact that medical textbooks only taught diagnostic signs based on how they looked on white skin, which meant black and brown patients could have their illnesses misdiagnosed or missed altogether. In Anna's telling, doctors were actively creating imagery that showed the presentation of illness on black skin, even though that was the result of experimentation. I asked when the practice shifted from that image making of black skin to complete a mission in popular medical texts. The texts or the you know the medical atlases I've looked at seem to already do that. So I'm not sure where that shift or if there was a shift about how it looks on black skin or how it looks on white skin. But what I've seen is the way that 
the images and the descriptions seem to kind of highlight or use this form of comparison to reinforce the fact that race is immutable and different. There are lots of comparative atlases of skin disease that are just purely set in Europe. Robert Carswell made several dermatological watercolours and Mechtiel Defend writes about him and he's sort of drawing on work done in France and Austria and so, so there are a lot of these textbooks already kind of just about what doctors are seeing in Paris or in London or in you know Vienna but the textbooks that I've seen that have both European and non-European examples it's not so much about trying to um show how yours might look on black skin and on white skin but it seems to be much more about these are the kinds of diseases that you get if you're in Fiji or in Jamaica and this is what happens in the UK and sometimes there's a kind of discussion about you know maybe how things might look but it seems that more about reinforcing these racial divides or categories. So it was less an omission and more a complete othering, marking the likes of tropical diseases as ones solely that would appear on black skin, where something seen as endemic to Britain would have image making around it restricted to examples on white skin. Earlier in our conversation, Anna also mentioned plantation hospitals. I wanted to know what was going on there. Were they hospitals for the people enslaved on the plantations? or hospitals for the elites? There were four enslaved people. Plantation owners needed to maintain functioning, physically fit workforce. So this is what a plantation hospital was for. And so the doctors would come and work on the plantation hospitals. You know, planters write about the importance of maintaining the health of their enslaved population. And it's obviously related to making sure they could be as productive and profitable as possible. And so there are these manuals about how to manage hospitals, the kind of guide to the medical management of enslaved people that was circulated. The other thing that Rana Hogarth makes is that they're also another form of surveillance. It's medical management, but management in the kind of most instrumentalising way. Who would be working in these hospitals? Like, What kind of doctors? Young medical students shipped over from England, doctors well into their career who wanted to go out to the colonies and experiment. Probably, I think enslaved people would probably have worked in there as well. And it would have been probably maybe both, but because some of these doctors do also talk about how they're learning from enslaved people about certain treatments or, you know, things like that. But in general, it would have been people brought there. And there were also public hospitals for enslaved people off the plantation in Kingston in Jamaica, for example, there was a hospital and asylum for deserted Negroes. People on the plantation, especially in the Caribbean, had such brutalised lives. How do we square this idea of plantation owners trying to take care of their workforce when we know the reality is that the lives of enslaved people in the Caribbean were short, brutish and marked by horrific violence? For reference, the life expectancy of a West African slave transported to Jamaica was seven years after arrival. On average, 10% of black African slaves didn't even survive that long. They died in their first year of enslavement. Rates of survival also depended on the plantation owner's particular brutality. I think this is where words like care and management become really ambivalent when you're talking about them within this sort of framework of racial capitalism. 
And so I think there's that aspect of it. I mean, I think often to the ways that people were cared for in these places where, you know, it's not maybe how we would think about care. And there's this great quote that Hogarth has. Basically, and these were not places to come and recuperate, but they were kind of another place where the disciplining of enslaved people continued in, in different ways. So I don't think it necessarily... I think it's just another part of that brutalization, to my mind. Doctors were obviously learning from their studies of enslaved people, but where did that flow of knowledge go? Was it back to Britain? Yeah, they would have gone back to the UK and then across to the different colonies because they would have been noted down in diaries. Doctors would have used medical journals to publish in a similar way to publish their results. They became part of colonial reports that were sent to colonial administrators because there were periodically there are times when colonial officials get really worked up about particular kinds of diseases like yours for example or syphilis and then there are a focused period of trying to study or or figure out what's going on so the example of yours I mentioned that this Dr Thompson is working on his findings get published in the Edinburgh Medical and Surgical Journal. They also then get used by colonial doctors in Sri Lanka who are compiling reports about yours in the plantations in Sri Lanka in the 1850s and 60s. And then there's another big report that comes out in the 70s because there's a fear about venereal disease spreading. The spectre syphilis hangs over this conversation because Britain had a huge drive against sexually transmitted diseases, culminating in the 1864 Contagious Diseases Act that was, unsurprisingly, massively rooted in colonialism and stigmatised sex workers in ports and towns frequented by the British military. There was a massive fear of sexuality within the colonies in particular. They were viewed as spaces full of debauchery, both spiritually and physically, where men would go and romp at will and come back diseased. Instead of consideration of sexual violence and the impact that had on the black and brown women, most often the victims of it in the colonies, they were portrayed as exoticised temptresses who infected pure white British men. Is that part of the stigma that we still carry today around sexually transmitted infections and diseases? So there's this great set of images about this guy, Johnny Newcomb. He's just this sort of rhetorical figure in a lot of early 19th century satirical prints about the kind of Johnny-come-lately kind of figure, right, who goes to India or the Caribbean and, and they're making fun of these British men who go to these places to try and better themselves and, you know, get into all sorts of trouble. But some of the Johnny Newcomb images related to the Caribbean are very much about this fear of contamination and the fear that because white men were raping and exploiting black women, they had black mistresses. And this kind of was something that refined middle-class society in Britain was horrified about, but also, you know, horrified about the spread. So that's definitely one thing. And, And there's this image called the Torrid Zone, which is about Jamaica that might be useful to have a look at. There's also a fear about how... These colonial spaces are dangerous for white people. And so I think, you know, STIs and the kind of sexual intimacy that becomes, or that's associated with venereal diseases, then also becomes a kind of a framework for the sort of 
dangerous closeness that white people and enslaved people or South Asian subjects have. So I think that's another aspect. And there's this book by Seth, Suman Seth. He talks a lot about that too, but there are sailors going to the Caribbean who also, you know, die in syndromes because of various kinds of venereal diseases. So I think it's very much connected to both the unfamiliarity of place and the kind of dangers associated with place. And then also this fear of the other, but it's also a fear that comes well, that can also be encapsulated through particular colonial figures, as well as the kind of fear of the non-white other. I think, too, there's also a kind of uneasy awareness of how colonialism is a kind of disease. It kind of facilitates this transmission of various forms of encounter and intimacy. And so I think there's also that sort of ambivalence about what colonialism makes possible <laughs> in this sense. I was thinking about the thread that runs through sites of British slavery as places where doctors and medical staff experiment in terms of healthcare development and our modern healthcare systems today. For example, the British NHS is the most diverse employer in the UK and was built on the backs of nurses and doctors and porters and cleaners who were initially migrant workers from the Commonwealth. By 1968, reports the Welcome Collection, nearly half of all NHS hospital doctors below consultant rank came from outside Britain. And a third of student nurse and midwife roles were filled by Commonwealth migrants, many of them from the Caribbean. It seems like a really telling legacy that the burden of care for the mother country then fell on further generations of people in these British colonies. Keeping the engine of empire going, but this time through looking after the health of Britain, rather than directly producing goods for the economy via slave labour. That's a really great example of how these legacies continue, who's doing caring. Historically, it's a lot of Caribbean community who are working in the NHS and brought over to do that. Now it's other migrant communities. So, yeah, I think that's one way we can see how that legacy of the racial capitalism of slavery and, and colonialism continues and how that structures, again, those structures of inequality are kind of embedded in these structures that, you know, are so proudly British in, in many ways. These structures always seem to be built on the backs of the labour of people who have been dispossessed from being fully British, even while they exist in spaces the British state claims as its own. And that's true. And I think you're right, like that dispossession is also what makes these workers expendable. The expendability of certain kinds of healthcare and certain kinds of forms of care is, I think, also really crucial to understanding that. Anna is right, medicine is life-saving and our understanding of sickness, health and what keeps our bags of flesh upright and functional is phenomenal. But that has come with a very high price to pay for those throughout history who were seen as medical matter rather than human beings. And one glaring aspect of enslavement is that health equals wealth, at least for plantation owners. Next episode, we'll be exploring the flip side of that and how our modern attitudes to death, ageing and disability may have been shaped by enslavement. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. 
Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Ben Yellowitz. This is a Broccoli production, part of the Sony Podcast Network.